0: And welcome to our Africa Travel Week Connect Unlock Africa podcast, where we bring the news, views, tips and tricks from tourism experts and personalities, sometimes simply sharing a window on their world and Africa's tourism sector.
1: It's a real pleasure to have Ian Mickler and Colin Bell to talk with about this really big question about whether we should be encouraging trade or not encouraging trade in rhino horn. I've been very concerned lately about the increasing reports of rhino poaching. And it seems to me that it's a good time to actually raise the question of whether there's any way in which by trading rhino horn, we could reduce the demand. If I'm honest, I'm quite sceptical, but I'd like to hear the arguments rehearsed. So we've got two people this afternoon to make the arguments for us. There's Ian Mickler who comes from the Sustainable Institute at Stellenbosch University, um, been heavily involved as many of you will know with bloodlines. Um, and we've got Colin Bell, who's an economist, who has been a wildlife tour operator for many years. Um, and was responsible, I think, or played a big part in the introduction of Rhino to Botswana. But Colin, do you want to to start to explain to people your views about whether we should or should not be encouraging trade in Rhino Horn?
2: Thank you, Harold, and good afternoon, everybody. Yeah, it's an interesting topic, and something which Ian and I have been really passionate about and very um, kind of involved with over the years because we witnessed an extinction and the extinction was rhinos in the wild in Botswana. In the seventies, and in the 80s early 80s there were rhinos everywhere uh, well not everywhere in Botswana you can go into the Bremi and Chobi and we'd see rhinos just about around every turn and then over the years as we started to get to the mid 80s we started to see fewer and fewer rhinos and then finally by about 86 87 whew, the lights went out and it's an extraordinary experience to witness an extinction and once you've witnessed an extinction, and when you go back to some of the areas where you watched rhinos frolicking around and doing their things, you have a huge emptiness as you look across those plains and you know they're not complete. There's a big missing element. And it says that witnessing when it, witnessing of an extinction, which I think really got us focused on to see, first of all, can we reverse the extinction? And then what to do to make sure that we don't have the extinction of rhinos in the wild throughout Africa. So it's been a sort of a A kind of a a project which Ian and I have been involved with for many years, as we try to make sure that our grandkids will have the opportunity to view rhinos in the wild. So, Ian Michler on the left, uh, myself on the right. We've both been around uh, in this industry for some time. But the interesting thing that both Ian and I have got business backgrounds. Ian, it comes from a stockbroking background. I'm a trained economist, and. I've had, in particular, a lot of experience with dealing with Asian markets, and you'll see why this becomes an important part of the story. But maybe we need to start off with this particular sort of comparison. Bontoboks versus rhinos. Total number of Bontobok in the world, 9,000. Total number of rhino in the world, 22,000. And yet, because there is no trade in Bontobok, Bontobok are not endangered and their species are rising. But because we are now putting a value to a horn and we have trade involved, suddenly rhinos are in extinction mode. There's a really good chance that in the next generation, unless things rapidly change, we could find that we have no more rhinos in the wild. And that is the great tragedy. And that is what we're trying to prevent in the story. So let's look at some numbers. <laughs> If you go back to the 70s, there were about 70,000 black rhino in Africa. And today, we've got about 6,100 throughout Africa, a 92% decline since I started working in the safari industry. White rhinos, there were ext- uh, such a small number of white rhinos in a in the Shishlui and Falozi area of South Africa, just a handful until they were discovered at the turn of the century, hundred years ago. And slowly over time, they, they grew in numbers through some very careful work by Ian Player and his crew. And when you put the two numbers together, you'll see this is what the graph looks like of rhinos, total rhinos in Africa. And the most interesting number the most interesting date in this whole process is 1993-1994. And that is the first time in history when both black rhinos and white rhinos started to increase in numbers together. And the reason for that, and we'll go to it in a bit more detail, the reason is because that's the first time that the planet got behind a total ban on all trade trade in rhino horn. The world got together. There were only about 2,500 rhinos left in the world from a total of nearly 70,000 just a few decades before. The entire world got behind a total rhino ban. There was no more demand as a result of the ban, and with no more demand, poaching dried up. And from that moment, rhinos started to increase in numbers. And if you look at it from a South African perspective, we came through a period when we had very few rhinos so poaching wasn't an issue we had a very uh apartheid or orientated security system where poaching any sort of transgressions were jumped on and ruthlessly disposed of. so poaching really wasn't an issue and we went through democracy until about 2004 2005 we started to hear stories about vietnamese coming into south africa and then suddenly we saw this huge spike of poaching around South Africa, up to over 1,200 rhinos poached in a particular year. It was one of those absolutely calamitous periods in South Africa's history in the wildlife game. And then we saw a drop-off. And the drop-off has been put down to that. Actually, poaching is under control. And as a result of that drop-off, there's been a lot, lot of complacency But if in the height of it, we saw all these graphs, WWF and everybody putting out these graphs of this extraordinary poaching scourge, which we were going through. And remember, these are just the rhinos which they found poached. If a rhino was hit by a bullet and died six weeks later, that wasn't counted. So you can add another three, four hundred rhinos to these numbers. And it was in the newspapers on a day in and day out basis. But today, because of this drop off in the number of poachers of a rhinos poached. There's kind of like an attitude, actually, the problem solved. But remember, we got reduced poaching because of COVID, number one, but because there are fewer rhinos to poach. But what we're seeing now is this is starting to turn, and unless we get on control of the story, that is our worry, and we're going to be seeing a rapid escalation of the numbers of rhinos poached and therefore the number of rhinos in the wild. And remember, Africa depends on a big fire story, particularly South Africa. If we don't have all of the wildlife into the recipe of of tourism and being, being in the tourism attraction, if we don't have rhinos in that recipe, we're going to see a drop off of tourism to Africa. And if we don't have tourists coming to Africa, as we saw in the COVID series, we're going to be in a situation we're not going to have the money for conservation. And clearly what's happening today is tourism is driving conservation and we cannot afford to lose one of our tourism icons. But let's start with what the story is all about. It's all about CITES, the convention of international trade in endangered species of wild fauna and flora. CITES is the organization which around about 880 countries have signed up to. And under the convention international law, international trade in rhino horn is illegal. Therefore, the onus is on those countries or parties wishing to change the legislation to conclusively prove that legalization of trade will be beneficial to that species. It is up to the proponents for trade if they want to change the laws to prove conclusively that trade won't damage the numbers in the wild, and to get a grip of what's happening in South Africa. If we go back ten years and we looked at the white rhino population in South Africa, remember we don't have too many black rhinos, but the principles are the same. Round about. of all the rhinos in South Africa were in private hands. 75% 10 years ago were in national parks and provincial game reserves. Just 10 years later, the whole picture's changed. Now 52% of all rhinos are in private hands and 48% are in national parks and provincial reserves. That's quite a swing around. And that's primarily because the government owned and managed uh, national parks and provincial reserves have been smashed by poaching. So the ratio has shifted very much onto the private sector side of it, uh, from a quarter to just over half half of the total population. But an interesting development in amongst the private ownership is around about 2,500 rhino, which are owned now by a handful of people who are have speculated in rhino horn. And so they are buying rhino, they are breeding rhino, and their sole aim is to go and be able to sell rhino horn to make money. And it's all under the guise of conservation. And these folks are around about 12% of the total population of rhinos and yet those 12% have an extraordinary amount of money to be made and they are driving a narrative which we believe is going to send rhinos in the wild to extinction and why is that? So let's step back a bit. This is what a rhino farm looks like. This is the one up near Johannesburg and where rhinos are put into relatively small areas and there's huge security and they're well fed and well looked after, there's vets and all the rest of it. And their numbers are breeding up and generally they are in pretty safe hands. They, the breeders and the speculators then went out on a finance-raising campaign, and a lot of people put a lot of money behind them, and they used that money to go and lobby. And they lobbied governments, the newspaper articles were put out, journalists were engaged in the process, and there were stories all around South Africa about how we have to trade our rhino horn, in other words, in, in order to save them. From extinction. And it's a very good narrative. And when there's a one-liner which says that we will flood the market and we'll drive out the poachers if we are able to sell our rhino horn, there's compelling arguments because they sound good, these one-liners. And over time, they started to develop quite a lot of inertia. And there's been quite a lot of people who now starting to believe the fact that actually trading rhino horn is the way to go. And that's what we're going to try and dispel today is the fact that we cannot even blink or think a moment about trading rhino horn. Because if we do trade our rhino horn, and if we look at the economics of it all and history and all the rest of it, it'll show that trading rhino horn is the surest way to put the rhinos in the wild on the way to extinction. A lot's been happening in the desperation to to trade and to um, to try and get some money to pay for their efforts. You know, speculators, they, it's like you buying futures, you're hedge, hedging your money and you're sort of taking a position on soya beans or the, what gold's gonna do. These folks are speculating rhino horn and many years later, decade, decade and a bit, they still have not been able to convince the world that they should be trading rhino horn. Uh, so that they can recoup some of their costs. And in a desperate effort to try and get some money, they even went on an auction. And this is almost illegal. (laughs) They were hoping to avoid the illegality by doing the actual trade in South Africa, which is legal. But the international part of that was illegal so all these guys have been out there desperately trying to raise awareness to lobby to convince to coerce governments and the, the citizens of the country to get behind their whole uh desperate urge to go and get the trade in rhino horn legalized and for this they put out a whole lot of myths and what we're going to do today is look at some of these myths and number one is that the private rhinos association represents the majority of all rhinos and South rhino owners in South Africa. and as we've seen from that little graph, they own about twelve percent. so when we see pe- organisations like proa, which is an organisation which represents just the speculators and they've managed to get a few of other folks to come in. they do not represent anywhere near the majority of all rhino owners in south africa so please folks when they say they represent no they do not the second myth they put out and this is one of their main sort of marketing and one-liner tools which they throw out on a regular basis is they say that south africa can flood global markets with rhino horn from existing stocks horn shavings and you're like, you can shave a rhino horn every sort of second year and get one or two kilograms and from future mortalities to satisfy asian demand and stop poaching if cites legalizes international trade in the sales of rhino horn so, so they go out and it sounds fantastic we've got all the stocks of rhino horn sitting in vaults we can go and shave rhino horn and we will flood the market and if we flood the market we're going to take away uh, the we're gonna flood the demand and then the poachers won't have any uh, market to sell their rhino horn to. Now, we're gonna prove that this is wrong. First of all, the pro traders have never, ever commissioned a study to find out accurately the potential size of the global market if trade in rhino horn was ever legalized. Can you imagine that? You're going to the world saying we're gonna flood the market but they've never done a study to find out the size of the market. That to me is extraordinary and it's reckless in my view. So let's look at some numbers. In 1978, we do know for sure that the total number of rhinos in Africa, 65,000. In 1987, the total number of rhinos in Africa was 4,000. We had lost 61,000 rhinos in nine years. That is equivalent. The poaching numbers was the average over all those nine years, 6,777 rhinos poached each year. And we think that a couple of hundred rhinos now is, is a lot. Can you imagine what this was like to have that many rhinos perched? That equ- equates to around about 45 to 50 tons of rhino horn a year. So the market from Asia, primarily at that time, a little bit of Yemen, was round about on average over nine years, about 45 to 50 tons. However, at the start of the period, there were a lot more rhinos and at the end, there was only 4,000 and a few years later, there was only 2,500 rhinos left in, in the world. And at the so, at, towards the end, you couldn't poach 6,777 rhinos in that year. So at the start, it was much higher and round about 70 tons were poached in 1978, in 1979. 70 tons of rhino horn. So the market at that period was around about 70 tons of Asia was consuming 70 tons of rhino horn. Now the South African government went out in 2014 and they did a study on how much rhino horn South Africa can sustainably supply to the world. And they came up with five tons of rhino horn a year. That's from mortalities, that's from future shavings, and that's from future mortalities. So if the global market has been as high as 70 tons a year, how is five tons of horn per year going to satisfy global markets. What we're going to do if we do sell five tons to the markets, we're going to stimulate demand and the Asian market's going to kick in and they're going to start demanding more rhino horn. And remember that Asian markets prefer wild products to farmed products. And all we're going to do is stimulate demand and that Asian market's going to kick in and we're going to put the rhinos in the wild in even more jeopardy. And if you just remember one thing today, 70 tons of horn was the total market and we can only supply five tons. So the myth of South Africa being able to flood global markets with rhino horn is a complete and absolute fallacy. We cannot do anything like that. Myth number three, if CITES legalize rhino horn trade, revenues can fund rhino conservation and security. Let's look at the numbers. Well, first of all, CITES has got 180 members and they need two thirds of all those members to change legislation. So we need around about a 120 members, countries, they call them parties, plus one to go and change legislation. South Africa, the best can get maybe 20, 25 members to side with them, no more. And most of those sides are kind of trades with countries like Japan. Okay, you vote for me on rhino, I'll vote for you on, on whaling. But we will never get to 120, 21 plus votes. The other converse is actually more true. All which is needed is 60 plus one votes to veto. And there's well, well, well more than 60 countries which will never vote for it. So the chances of sightsees ever legalizing rhino horn consumption and sales is practically zero. The second part of this uh, particular myth is that the rhino speculators don't know what price to set it at. They keep saying, oh no, we need the money for conservation, therefore the price must be high. But if you put the price high, the poachers are going to have a field day. And if you keep them prices really low, there's no money for conservation and security. So what is it? And they can't make up their own mind. But the other day, Proa came up and they said they would like to sell their horn to the market at $10,000 per rhino horn, per kilogram. And that equates to about Just over a million rand per rhino horn. So for a million rand, all what it takes to go and poach a rhino is a bullet and a panga. So there's a lot of money between what the market will pay, not a retail, but the wholesale market in Asia will pay and the price of a bullet and a panga. So this debate keeps going. Keep the prices high, sell low, we don't know. And the most important thing is central selling organizations. You can't one rhino... Fella can't run around to Asia trying to find a um, to sell their rider horn. So they talk about a central selling organization taking all the horn, controlling it, and selling it to the Asian markets. So the question is, who's going to buy it? That's another story because it's illegal in China and illegal in a lot of those countries. But that central central selling organization is illegal unless it's government to government. So you can't create a central selling organisation, as De Beers and the Oppenheimers found out when they were selling diamonds and they had to disband it because it's against world trade regulations. So the only way it's legal is that the South African government has to deal with the Vietnamese government. Can you imagine what's going to happen when the Vietnamese generals get hold of this and the South African government, which is known for its corruption, how much money is going to be left after all of that? Not much. And the parallel with rhino horns. So South Africa went out in 2008 and said to the world, folks, we've got 108 tons of of ivory, and we wanna sell the the ivory to the world, and we're gonna use that money for conservation. A great story, the world bought it. And what happened? All we did is we created a legal market in China, and we had all these carvings, uh, sightings, which were created to go and sell the 108 tons. And we created the ability for the criminal syndicates to come in and launder through these legal outlets, the illegal poached ivory. And we ended up in a situation where we ended up with something like a rhino, I'm sorry, an elephant being shot every 15 minutes, a hundred thousand elephants were poached every single year because of this one trade. So this whole story that we think that we can go along and trade and create money and protect the animals from, from poachers and is, absolute fallacy, because as soon as you have a legal outlet, you then have the ability for the criminal syndicates to launder an illegal poached product into the legal market. And that is because at the point of sale, you have no idea whether that ivory or the rhino horn or the abalone is real from a source, which is legal, or it's from a source, which is illegal. And, uh, Professor Nadal had a lot to say about this. He looked at the whole world trade and from an economist's point of view, he's from the University of Manchester, and this paper, Leonardo Sales, was extraordinary. And one of the key outcomes of this paper was that all of the pro-trade models have been discredited beyond repair. They are not only a brutal simplification of real-world economics, they are also a serious assault on logic. They are deeply flawed, an act of recklessness. So the the myth, it is a myth, is CITES legalized rhino horn trade, revenues can fund, it is a myth, it can never, ever happen. CITES trade bans on the sale of rhino horn have never worked. This is another myth, that CITES trade bans have worked. This is a different graph, this is the number of elef- uh, rhinos poached, and you can see in 1993, we had a sudden, almost, dead stop of poaching. Why? Because the entire world got together in 1993 and January of 1994, and we banned all trade in rhino horn. Even China took traditional medicine off the rhino scale, and they supplemented with uh, buffalo horn. So there was no trade anywhere in the world. The whole planet got together, put all rhino horn onto appendix one, and from that moment, we had the golden years for rhinos where there was no demand because there was no trade and there was no sales outlet. Suddenly, poaching disappeared and rhinos went their merry way until South Africa went and we got rhinos onto Appendix Two in South Africa because our rhinos were breeding well, the white rhinos in particular. And what happens? The Vietnamese criminals realized there was a loophole. They came and they we sold as a country 1,000 CITES permitted rhino hunts to Vietnamese criminals who ended up with the horn and also with a certificate. And now once they had the certificates, any illegal Uh, poached rhino horn they brought into the country, they could cover up with their CITES permits. Again, there's no linking of a particular horn to a particular CITES permit. You could roll those on forever and ever. And they started to experiment with markets that was initially used as a a sort of tonic. Obviously, there's rumors about aphrodisiacs. And... They, the criminals started to manipulate the markets to find out what they could get the most value. It became a currency. It became a form of trade. It became uh, a source of uh, prestige. And ultimately, right now, the most value they get out of rhino horn is through jewelry. So we started, we opened up the the floodgates when we sold legal hunts to the criminals, and we opened up the floodgates by having sighties to for our local rhino. So the trade ban did work. It worked superbly when the entire world got together and banned all trade and there were no loopholes. That is the key, no loopholes. Myth number five, rhino horn has been used in traditional Chinese medicine for millennia It can't be stopped, nonsense. Taiwan went in in 1993, they stopped all rhino horn and they'd been using rhino horn for millennia. And today there's still no rhino horn in any of the traditional Chinese medicines in Taiwan and in China. So it's a myth. Rhino horn can be sold to the traditional Chinese markets. Forget it. It's off. It's off the market. It's a myth. South Africa can leave CITES. Well, we can, but we'll join North Korea and South Sudan. Do we, we've been a pariah. We were a pariah all those years before 1994. Do we want to be a pariah again? I doubt it. I don't think we can leave CITES. That's a myth. And the big one from the traders they say we save ostriches and crocodiles from extinction by breeding them therefore we can trade rhino horn and we will save the rhinos from extinction That's a fantastic one-liner, except that you've got to be able to compare apples with apples. A rhino is a slow-breeding animal. It can probably have four, five, six, seven in its lifetime, whereas crocodiles and ostriches have huge clutches and breed very quickly. Just five generations of intensively bred ostriches can result in 100 million ostriches. So please, when you hear this wonderful-sounding one-liner, Ostriches and crocodiles, we must compare like by like, because five generations of rhinos breeding is not anything near enough to get rhinos out of extinction. It's a myth. Number nine, trading vicuña wool has been a success. Therefore, trading rhino horn will be a success. And this guy, Dr. Christian Bonakic, was the guy who implemented the trade process of Vicuña wool in South America. He was the biggest proponent for trade in Vicuña. And they started these farms, they bred them up on the farms, and they created the market and the fashion houses of Europe for wool because of its wonderful properties. But they suddenly did an investigation of what was happening in the parks. While the farms were thriving, the numbers of Vicuña in the wild were plummeting. And Dr. Bonachik had this absolute epiphany, and he suddenly realized that his processes and his policies was leading the vicuña in the wild to extinction. And he came around South Africa a number of years and he spent three months trying to get the government and various authorities to understand that actually trade in an endangered species is the first way to bring it to extinction in the wild, as he had witnessed. So vicuña is not a success story. It was initially touted as a success story, but as a complete failure because the numbers of vicuña in the wild are plummeting. Miss number ten: Communities can benefit from rhino horn farms and therefore stop poaching. Fantastic! This is Kruger Park. Villages outside Kruger Park. Kruger Park on the right. Where do you going to put the rhino horn, and who's going to benefit? If that's Kruger Park, you can see the green is Kruger, the light areas the communities. Do we put the park, the the rhino farm here, or here, or here, or here? What about the people who live in the middle? <laughs> It's such a myth that the actual pro have now withdrawn that, but they still keep trotting it out now and then because it can never work. And instead what they're saying, and their next myth, is that communities therefore do not need to earn a single rhino. They've done a complete backtrack because it's been the previous myth has been proved to be incorrect. They can be trained to produce curios, crafts, and other processed horn products like jewelry, health hydros, and TCM clinics. Oh my goodness. Great one, sound. Great sounding one-liners. It's a myth. Private sector has no incentive to keep and protect rhino horn, and rhinos. And what a myth! Look at the Sabi Sands. They have the perfect incentive, which is tourism and the revenues and the profits to be earned from tourism. To make sure that they put the security in place to protect the rhino horn. And you go on and on and on. Look at all the private game reserves, the Shamwari's, the Kwandwis, the Amakandlas, the That all these private game reserves around South Africa, they have the profit incentive to make sure that they protect their rhinos because that protects their business. It's a myth. So what are the solutions? Folks, there is no silver bullet. And anybody who tells you that there's a silver bullet for rhino perching is smoking his socks. There has to be two programs. There has to be an international program in Asia and internationally to go and reinstate full CITES Appendix 1 trade bans without loopholes. We have to get rid of the loopholes just like we did in 1993. We have to ramp up the demand reduction campaigns as they have done with shark fin and others. And we have to have huge international trade and political pressures which are united as one. And then locally, first of all, we need to copy Nepal. What does Nepal do where they've got rhinos in the wild with almost zero poaching and they're so close to the markets? They do a whole lot of things. They stop the mixed messaging. There's no story about, oh, don't bite our rhino horn, but buy our rhino horn. They target the kingpins. They have whistleblower funds. They have effective security, law enforcement, first responders. They have effective judicial systems, and penalties are harsh. They tackle corruptions, and South Africa needs to do the same inside our South African National Park and the provinces. But most important, communities need to be fully integrated to the tourism and wildlife industry. And I guess this is where we're going to end off. And, Ian, it's going to be over to you. I love this quote by Wangari Matai. She's the wonderful Kenyan woman who wrote the most extraordinary book about trees and all the rest of it. The generation that destroys the environment is not the generation that pays the price. My big worry is if we continue down this road to try and get rhino horn trade legalized, migrate grandchildren will not see rhinos in the wild. And that would be a tragedy. So Ian,
0: over to you. Well, uh, thanks, Colin. So I'd like to just reinforce um, uh, on, on a few of the points you made. So um, the first one was the issue around changing the law and, um, And this is very important. So the law is in the favor of no trade. Uh, As it is with any criminal legal situation, you have to prove beyond reasonable doubt. Um, Here, we're talking about have to show conclusively that changing the trade laws would benefit the species. And uh, I think what I would like to add here is that in conservation, this aspect is also central to carrying out what we refer to as the precautionary principle. Now, the precautionary principle is in all the IUCN documents. It's a very, very, very central part of uh, management and 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 research um, in the environment. So, one cannot implement change in the hope that things will be different. And, and that's what the pro-trade lobby are doing. Um, the, the precautionary principle is there to avert risks and serious or irreversible harm to the environment, particularly in the absence of scientific certainty. And so on that basis alone, there should be no trade. There's too much uncertainty. They have no conclusive evidence. I think another point I'd like to reinforce here is that Um, blaming the fact that there is no trade as the reason for the poaching crisis is a self-serving argument and it's based on mismatched reasoning there is no science out there that clearly shows this link we have, instead, we have a poaching crisis for a host of other reasons corruption, poor management the false claims for usage and benefit, socioeconomic circumstances around our national parks and, and massive criminal elements. These are the reasons we have a poaching crisis, not because there is no trade. So those are the issues we need to focus on, not on trying to legalize a trade. <laughs> um, I think a Colin's slide on flooding the markets, I think it was myth number two. Um, uh, yes, this, needs to, this point needs to be reiterated here. Flooding the markets is simply wishful thinking and it's very poor or even dumb economic arguments. And, and that's many, many economists out there have, have written about this. Um, these guys cannot say what amount of warn is required to flood the markets. They cannot tell us at what price is the market deemed to be flooded. And neither can they tell us at what level will the poachers exit these markets. Pro traders have no answers to these vital questions in economics. And so it is my assessment that in fact, with high levels of poaching across this continent, I mean, sorry, with high levels of poverty across this continent, any price will continue to encourage poaching. Whether it's at $5,000 a kilo, $500 a kilo, or $50 a kilo, poor poverty, I mean, high poverty levels, poor socioeconomic circumstances will encourage poaching. I think another point I'd like to emphasize on on the poor economics is that in in all the pro-trade arguments, there is no recognition or understanding of the demand side. So everything that they put forward is on the supply side. How much horn can we supply? How many live animals can we supply? But none of them give any recognition or effort towards the demand side. And that is where the dangers lie. Let's also remember that if we legalize trade, we are destigmatizing an otherwise illegal products. And when you destigmatize something, you also fan the demand. What will happen if demand doubles or even quadruples? Can you imagine the size of the Asian markets? Try and figure that the Asian markets, over a billion, 1.5 billion potential users. And we now start fanning the the demand side. We don't have enough rhinos to supply, not even remotely so. And the pro-trade lobby has very little to say on that side of the equation, and that's where the dangers lie. Um, I think it's also important to, to, to emphasize this apparent link between farming and conservation. I'd ask the question is, where is this link between farming and conservation? Instead, I'd, I'd say that farming or commodifying rhino and horn has nothing to do with conservation. It's a completely false link. These are commercial speculators as Colin has pointed out and they're farmers and they've hijacked the conservation agenda to serve their financial interests. And let's also remember that farming is all about human selection techniques. It's not about natural selection. It's about human selection techniques. And that leads to domestication. And of course, what they're trying to do is maximize the returns on the animals. This has nothing to do with conservation, and again, so linking the two is just mismatched reasoning and a very self-serving argument, in in my view. I think that um, uh, another point that I'd also like to emphasise is that right now we have no trade yet, rhino are suffering in a big way, and one of the primary reasons is that corruption and mismanagement is right now. Can you imagine? if we now add a complicated trading mechanism that actually legalizes the trade. South Africa currently sits number 70 out of 180 on the corruption index. This is up from 43 out of 172 countries in 2012. So our corruption levels are increasing significantly, almost concomitantly with uh, the poaching in, in rhino. So I believe that with our high corruption or increase in corruption levels, opening up a trading mechanism is just going to add significantly to the scope for those that are involved in poaching. And as Colin said earlier, all it does is it allows black horn or black market to be uh, laundered through uh, a so-called legal market. So, and, and uh, um, Colin, you finished with that lovely quote from Bongari from, uh, Metai. and I'd like to add something to that. And these are the words of the Australian philosopher Ivan Illich. And he spoke these words in 1969. And he said, the more we viewed nature as a disposable commodity or a convenient resource, the less we would worry about its degradation. And that is exactly the path that we are on with Rhino. By placing a price on horn, you're doing two things. One, you're clearly saying to the world, The value of that animal lies only in its financial tag. And secondly, you're putting a massive, big target, and it's a legal target on its body. I think that's, you know, that's uh, that's sort of to wrap up my additions to what Colin has so clearly said.
1: Well, thanks very much, Colin and Ian. That's a fascinating account of the difficulty. I wanted to ask to what extent do you think the problems about the the poaching of rhino horn, which is clearly still going on, to what extent is that being driven by, by trade?
2: So maybe we just need to specify the, just sort of contextualise one part of that, is that we're in a situation where South Africa the CITES legislation governs international trade. Inside South Africa, trade in rhino horn is legal. So we've got this strange situation. We've got the speculators desperately trying to sell their stuff. And that's what led to that auction and all this type of stuff. So we've got a situation that there is trade here, but it's the promise of trade. And it's that, you know, I gave a talk once in Asia and there was a fellow in the audience who came up to me afterwards and he said to me, Colin, one of the biggest problems you're going to you're going to have is that while you're giving mixed messages, to Asia, the Asian consumer is going to take the message he wants to listen, he wants to hear. And he said, I'm a consumer. I love my food and I love my shopping and all the rest of it. And I'm hearing from Africa that we mustn't buy the rhino horn from you. And I'm hearing from people in South Africa that they want to sell rhino horn. I will take the view which suits my soul being, which is my, I'm a consumer. And I will then go towards that because if there's people saying that we can trade it, I presume it's legal and I'll go and buy it. So if I'm offered rhino horn in Asia, I'm hearing that it's okay to buy it. And I think the problem is once we have loopholes, we start to then aid in a bit the demand supply the demand side of this whole story kicking in and that's the problem is we creating all the right energy for demand to be ramped up and i think that we've only just it's bad at the moment but if we let this thing out of the genie box we could suddenly find that demand as ian pointed out can go right through the roof and we've
1: got to be very careful we're right at the tipping point so colin let me just check that i've understood what i think is the main thrust of your argument I think you're entirely right that there's no way that CITES are going to legalise the trade in rhino I can't see that happening for all the reasons that you've described very eloquently. So the problem is that by a relatively few people in... Southern Africa, in South Africa specifically, talking about the desirability of a legal trade in rhino horn, they are effectively legitimizing in the idea, in the minds of the potential consumers in Asia, that perhaps it is okay to buy rhino horn products. Is that the core of the argument? Have I got that right? Absolutely, absolutely. And the fact that
2: it's legal to buy rhino horn in South Africa where most of the rhino are is a a perfect example of why it's okay to buy rhino horn. The people I've met who bought rhino horn or been trading it, they don't see it as a crime. Why? Because of the mixed messaging coming out of South Africa.
1: It's quite interesting for me Colin, given where I live, to reflect on drugs policy, Uh, and by that I mean illegal drugs, because one of the challenges there is that there is mixed messages, for example, about cannabis. And the mixed messages do indeed create, I think, some of the legitimacy about the more harmful and clearly illegal forms of cannabis like skunk and in a way what you're talking about is a problem that has a lot in common with the challenge of any trade in illicit goods if there are people arguing that actually it's a legitimate trade
2: absolutely harold and you know but look at tiger look at the lion bone trade look at uh Abalone, look at American ginger, look at bear bile, all of these pro- products. When you have a legal outlet and in South Africa we grow abalone perlimone we grow it here we have got a few farms so we have a legal outlet but what's happening in the wilds our perlimone are being smashed because once you have that legal outlet and you can go to restaurants in Singapore where you have 500 diners all eating abalone because it's legal but at the point of sale you have no clue whether that abalone on your plate is from a legal source or an illegal source and that's the problem you have a parallel market and we have to view rhinos in particular as an extraordinarily rare asset and we've got to make sure that for so many reasons we have to protect them and soon as we are, uh, let this little trade and the we if we relax the international trade laws i think we're going to just see the rhinos in the wild go to
0: extinction at such a rapid rate can, can I just add, can i just add to that Harold, is that, uh, that the abalone example is a classic one where um, it's high value. And I think the, I'd also like to, to add to the ostrich and crocodile, the, the value of the product is also important. Um, so it, it's it, Colin spoke about comparing apples with apples. You need to compare high value products with high value products. Rhino horn is a high value product. Abalone is also a very high value product. We have abalone farms, but it has not stopped the rampant poaching of the wild populations. Um, so, again, as Colin says, a, a legal market just facilitates the black market. And then, just to add to your point, Harold, about cannabis, what has happened to the demand side of cannabis in the USA? I've been following that market. Since they've destigmatized the use of cannabis, demand has gone crazy. And so there are. Thousands of Americans who will tell you stories of the cash that they've got stashed under their beds and their garages because there's still a problem with the banking of, of, of the profits. But the demand side of, of that product has gone crazy. And that's part of the issue that we're extremely concerned about with regards to rhino horn. You destigmatize the, the, the product, you fan demand, and then you've got a massive runaway fire. And, and as Colin says, the genie is out the bottle. You can't put it back.
1: Ian can I just bring you back to to the point that you made about the I suppose the colloquial way of saying it is knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing and in a sense that's that's what's happened with to be honest I'm very critical of conservation having done this the idea that you put specific values on things you can always find something more valuable to do with that piece of land that isn't going to save the piece of land or the animal it's been a disaster um, for conservation, unpopular for saying it, but but your example in, in relation to this, it's the same thing, isn't it? That there's almost no price you could put on rhino horn that would actually save it, because it becomes a more and more valuable thing just to sit on your shelf as a trophy, as it goes up in value. You see that with works of art you know the, the more the rarer the artist the rarer the piece of artwork the higher the price and th- to that way it, it just seems to me that it's the road to hell paved maybe with good intentions but a road to hell nonetheless 100 percent.
0: so yes um in, in the sustainable use lobby and and I, yeah i'm going to bring them in here because they're the primary drivers, drivers of this um what they're doing is that they are basically telling us and the, the world that unless there's a, 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 a price on the a financial value on these creatures, then the animal has no value. Um, there's no consideration here for the ecology of of these species, there's no consideration for the integrity of biodiversity and and our conservation principles. And and so if that all goes out the door and we focus primarily on the financial value, then exactly what, what Ivan Illich says, is that over time, then we are less concerned about its degradation. All we're concerned about is maximizing the value, which is financial. And it's the same thing with the trophy hunting industry. They talk about the if it pays, it stays. And the best way to secure the future of these animals is to kill the gene pool. Well, I'll ask the question again. The trophy hunting industry can never tell you when they're going to stop shooting lions or rhino or elephant. The price will keep going up, and there'll always be someone who's prepared to pay a higher price. But, they, but that's because there's only a financial value, and there's no ecological consideration here. There's no um wider appreciation of ecosystems and and, and and how everything works together. And so yeah, it's a massive it's a massive problem. And that's why, Harold, these the, the people who are driving this lobby, they are businessmen. They are speculators and tra- they're not conservation people. There's a few in South Africa who belong to the hardcore sustainable use lobby, but they are the consultants for um, these rhino owners. And they come out of a school of in, in the 80s, 70s and the 80s, where that's when the sustainable use doctrine was born. Um, but, you know... <laughs> The people driving this issue up front, they trade as businessmen, they speculators. they've taken a long position on rhino world. That's all they've done. They haven't taken a long position on the conservation of the species. They're not involved in trying to solve corruption. They're not involved in in habitat preservation. They're not involved in taking the fences down for the consideration of, of biological integrity and, and, bio, and biodiversity integrity. They're not involved in any of those issues. They're merely involved in driving a pro-trade agenda. And they've got the lawyers and the consultants. Who, that's all they do because they will maximize hundreds of millions of dollars of profit.
2: Thank so, you, thank so Harold. It's,
0: Harold, you touched on an interesting point
2: back there, and I think we need to bring this into the into the realm of the tourism industry. So in South Africa, the tourism industry pre-COVID was around about 150, maybe 200 billion, depending where you talked about it. So it's a massive industry, and it employs uh, about 1.5 million people directly and indirectly, and when you add in the dependent factor, one in six or one in seven South Africans depend on tourism to put food on their table every day and send their kids to school. That's a hell of a big industry in South Africa, and that's largely on the wildlife and on the big five. Now, in contrast, if you went and took the pro organization or the speculator's value, they say that they are going to settle on $10,000 per kilogram of rhino horn. And we can supply five tons sustainably per year. So in other words, for five tons times that by the $10,000 times 18 uh, rand to the dollar, that's 900 million rand a year. So for 900 rand... 900 million rand per year. We're jeopardizing an industry which is 120, 150, 200 billion. In other words, not even 1% of the total tourism industry is valued and contribution to South Africa. We want to jeopardize that 99% for 1%. It doesn't make sense. Why should 1% overrule the 99%? And it's the 99% of the tourism industry which is not for hunting and not for trade and not for all these different things. They're there to make sure that the guests who come to South Africa have a great time and they be looked after and they have a great experience and they go back, happy campers. That is the bulk, that's the 99% of this industry. And that is where the jobs are getting created. That's where the one in six or one in seven South Africans get their revenue through directly or through a relative. And we cannot be in a situation where the 99% is jeopardized by the 1%. To me, the tourism industry is the driver for the future of conservation of all these wild places because of the revenues which they generate. The problem we've got right now is that obviously COVID took a dent in that, but we're rebuilding very quickly. But we have to have a functioning ecosystem and a fully diverse ecosystem to t- attract the tourists. Otherwise, they're gonna go elsewhere. We we take out one of our key selling points. And I see, I believe our tourism numbers will drop. Our ability to employ people will drop considerably even further. I think the biggest issue then is that if that is the nine 99% is there, why are the 99% never consulted? And that's been the past process where all the consultation has been done through the, the breeders and they get their mates to be interviewed and all the rest of it. And that's what governments listened to until recently. And now, finally, there's a white paper which will reverse that. But the pro trade lobby is fighting back hard because they're the 1%, but they don't like being the 1%. They want to be the 99, but they're not the 99. So the tourism industry's got a huge role to play in the preservation of rhinos going forward. And it's through the non-consumptive, bringing tourists here, entertaining them, hosting them in our great game reserves, in our private game reserves, in our lodges, wherever. And that to me is we've always got to think what is better for the greater good. The greater good in my view is the 99% which are creating the bulk of the jobs. Now, we as an industry have to integrate communities far more into our industry, whether it be in the national parks, the money they receive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. cetera. But that's another story.
1: Colin, I think that's a really good place to wrap this up. And I'd like to thank you and Ian for this session. What I would say, though, to further your argument, is that part of the problem about the tourism industry, and you're entirely right about the fact that the benefits of tourism are distributed much more widely in South African society, is that we don't hear from the vast majority of people in the travel and tourism industry who, who work in it. We only hear from the equivalent people, the same kind of the the big guys, the people who own the big companies and the big lodges. We don't hear from the workers in that industry. And I think one of the things that you and I could begin to do together is to get some of those voices actually heard out there about how important tourism is to local communities, rather than um, the big employers actually saying on their behalf, we need to hear it from them about why tourism matters to them. And that would help to shift this agenda significantly, I think.
2: Absolutely. And I think we've got to also accept that, you know, when a person goes to a national park, they're very happy to pay a park fee. Which they know the park fee goes <clears throat> to to the running costs, to the staff, and all the rest of it. But we do need to start also paying a community fee. We do, and Absolutely. that money has to go. To the grassroots level. And we've got to get beyond just the big players Marie. and the guys on the, uh, the committees getting the money. We need to make sure that we create an industry where the money flows through to the poorest of the poor. Yes, and I think absolutely. that's the next phase. And we're starting to see it now develop where tourism companies are saying, this is your accommodation charge, this is your park fee, and this is your community element. And I think that's where we're going to really start seeing massive changes in the tourism industry for the good.
1: Colin I hope you're right about that but certainly we also need to hear people from those communities saying that tourism matters rather than just 100% 100%. Colin and Ian thank you very much we'll wrap it up there for, for today thank you